I want you to grab your copy of the Word of God, because let's get to the Scripture today, because you want to hear a message. Jeremiah chapter 29, because I was really uh, wanting to share <laughs> what God laid in my heart, and I didn't know where to go with this. didn't really know what I was walking into today. Uh, so I want to share with you Two days after the election, which really has not profited us a clear answer and may not for another week or two weeks or three weeks, however, we don't know. Plus, we're wearing masks because of COVID going on. This is a weird thing. I, I've been flying a lot, a little bit more lately, and, and still wearing a mask is odd uh, to me. When you cough in a mask, people still look at you weird. If you sneeze on a mask, people think you just shot a missile at them. And uh, just, just, people are so nervous but on the elevator. Well, I go to the hotel. A guy went to get on the elevator with me. I mean, some people are so nervous. They make coffee cups look nervous. They're just so nervous on edge all the time. And uh, our world is looking for a place of hope. Our world is looking for a place of peace. They're looking for an anchor in the middle of all of this. Our church, um, I'll tell you a little bit about what we have done in our time we have here, about how we have adjusted and how we found a way through this. But first in Jeremiah 29, let me talk to you about what's going on here in this passage of Scripture. It is no surprise to you as either your Bible student or at least at a Baptist college, and there's a lot of professors here, so it's always intimidating to preach in front of you guys as well because you know much more than I do. But ancient documents have always governed and influenced and directed our lives centuries, if not even longer, afterwards. Our Constitution in the United States, adopted in 1787, still is governing us now and will probably save us the next week or two through all the things you're about to go through. Thank the Lord for that document that was signed and sealed September of 1787. It is going to show a lot of power in the coming weeks, will it not? Additionally, the copy of God's Word you have in front of you. The last book we believe was written, Revelation, about 96 AD, about 2,000 years ago. Still, the Word of God does what? directs our lives. It impacts our lives. It influences our lives. Well, I want to go back about 500 years before that even to the prophet Jeremiah and speak to what's going on here. You see, there's this time, and most of you know this story of what's going on here. It's called the exile. And during this exile time, several of your books in your Old Testament are written about this exile time. When the Persian king and the Babylonian king came and conquered the area of Israel and took over into captivity about 900 miles to the east and three different separate captivities, they took away all the Jews, or not all the Jews, and some of the Jews to take into captivity. And it's called the exile and the word of God. It started about 586 B.C., some believe, some believe a little bit earlier, about, I believe 586 B.C. by the people I read. And the Jewish nation was defeated by Babylon, taken over there, and it was very clear how long this captivity would last. you know how long the Bible says it's going to last? Very clearly, 70 years. is what the prophet was told by God himself. God allowed it to happen. Israel had wicked king after wicked king after wicked king. Israel's morality began to slip away. Israel even had a civil war and divided to a northern and southern kingdom. And the religious practices became tainted and became very, very less regulated. Sounds eerie familiar, does it not, to the nation we call home today. Well, an interesting thing happened during this exile. An interesting thing happened during this time that I want to pull out today that really kind of just uh, resonates with my heart, and I want to talk to you about that. Like I said, several books in your Old Testament address this series. Daniel, Ezekiel, they speak exactly about this time they were talking about during the exile. Words from God and what God did. Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, and even Esther, which I'm preaching through my church right now, speaks about the end of the exile and the rebuilding of Jerusalem that was connected to the exile and Esther as she stayed behind. But before all that, prophets spoke about what was about to happen. 
And Jeremiah spoke very clearly. Jeremiah spoke very boldly about what's going to happen. And guess what happened? Their nation didn't listen to them any more than our nation listens to us at times. And here's Jeremiah, the, the nation's most famous prophet in his day, speaking very clearly about what God has told him is going to happen, and he wasn't listened to. In fact, here's something interesting. About 50 years later, about 40 years later probably, Daniel was in captivity in Babylon. And the Bible says in Daniel chapter 9, verse 2, that as he was thinking about what's going on, he remembered the prophet Jeremiah in Daniel 9, 2. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood the books according to the word of the Lord, to the prophet Jeremiah, that the number of the years for the desolation of Jerusalem would be 70. Everyone say 70. And so he started doing the math. He realized, hey, we're getting close. Hey, wait a second. God said it was going to be 70. Hey, we're getting close. If I believe that God's word is true, I should find hope in that because we're getting to the point where I know what's going to happen next. I can believe God for some big things. That makes a difference. Let me tell you why. Number one, it proves that one word, uh, one book of the Bible validates another book of the Bible. And anytime you have that happen, you have this reference that's happening that gives validity to what's happening. Also, it makes a difference because it tells Jeremiah, told Daniel. Jeremiah told Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Jeremiah told Esther. Jeremiah was telling all these people, the bad times are going to come. But I'm going to tell you what God has told me to tell you how to survive and how to even thrive during those bad times. And so they literally had this guidebook. Now catch me. They had a guidebook 40, 50 years earlier written by Jeremiah. This is going to happen. And when this happens, this is what you're to do. This is how you survive. This is how you're to thrive. This is how you're to honor God during this exile. Just like we have on our nation, a 200-plus-year-old document is telling us how to handle an issue today. They had something very similar, but much more inspired by God, of course, telling them what to do, how to act, how to survive, and how to thrive. Well, it takes courage to live by that. And let me say this to you students. As someone who planted and pastored here for six years, and from here we went to Ohio, we were there for two years, and Cleveland, Ohio was much more diverse than any other place I lived in my entire life. From there, we went to San Diego and planned a church. I was there three and a half years. It was a very unique experience. I planned churches literally on both coasts. Both coasts have a Highway 1. I say I've driven north on Highway 1 with the ocean on my right hand and the ocean on my left hand. It's, it's a neat experience. We went to Missouri, Joplin, as you talked about there. I was on staff at Cross Church a couple times, a big church in Arkansas. And everywhere I go... I've learned something that's true. It takes courage to live for one king while you're living in the kingdom of another. And I'm going to say that once again because I really want that statement to resonate in your hearts and minds. It takes courage to live for one king while you're living in the kingdom of another. And right here, right now, we are living for the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Do you agree with that? Say amen. Though we are very physically in the kingdom of Vermont. We're very physically in the kingdom of, of America. We're very, or North America, very physically in the kingdom of this earth. And so what are we to do? How do we engage our kingdom while living for another king? How do we need to engage the king that we're supposed to live in while honoring the king for which we are supposed to have full devotion to? Make no mistake, we're not the only people who've ever had to do this. Christ Jesus himself had to do the will of his father while living where? Amongst this father's creation. So we are in that same exact boat. So like you, so like me, Daniel, Esther, Smack, which is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, all those guys had to live the same way and figure out exactly what to do. Well, let me jump in and tell you what's going to happen. 
Jeremiah wrote a book. And in Jeremiah 29, he writes a letter to the exiles telling them, this is what you're going to do when you're in this forced exile by God. Pick up verse 1 of Jeremiah 29. This is the, why don't you stand real quick in honor of this one verse. I have several others, but we won't do the rest when you stand. Jeremiah 29, 1. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the remaining exile elders, to the priests, to the prophets, and all the peoples Nebuchadnezzar had deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. Lord God, may you please add to the reading of your word in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen and amen. You may be seated. Now, here's the problem. Very clearly, God had said it would be 70 years. Everyone say 70 years. In Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 11, Jeremiah said, God told me it will be 70 years. 2 Chronicles 36, it was recorded that God had told Jeremiah it would be 70 years. Because Chronicles recorded it means it was widespread. People knew this prophecy from this famous prophet. It would be 70 years. Everyone say 70 years. However, people did not like that prophecy. Jeremiah called it God's wrath. He said, we got to take this cup of God's wrath and drink it. It won't kill us, but we got to drink it. Well, because he didn't like that, other people wanted something easier. Other people wanted a little bit easier token of God's wrath. Maybe just a little shot glass compared to the pint. I don't know what, but he wanted something a little more simple. So Jeremiah wrote this letter telling them very clearly what they're supposed to do with that. In fact, one of those prophets speaks about that a chapter earlier. Jeremiah 28, verse number 10. The prophet Hananiah took the yoke bar from the neck of the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah had an oxen yoke, a wooden one, walking around as this public symbol saying, we're about to be enslaved by the Babylonians for our sinfulness. And it was like this public lapel pin saying, we're in trouble. God's going to put us in this exile. We're going to be in this yoke on the Babylonians. And everyone who saw this man knew this guy's, number one, not right in the head. Number two, has a message to say. So Han and I, in front of all the people, went, took this, broke it somehow. I doubt he snapped it over his knee, but he broke it somehow, unless he was built like Mark and I because we used to work out. But look at verse 11. In the presence of all the people, Han and I proclaimed, this is what the Lord says. And this way, within two years, I will break the yoke from King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon from the neck of all the nations. The prophet Jeremiah then went on his way. <laughs> That's very unique what happened there. Everyone say two years. If God said you had to go to jail, but you had to pick two years or 70 years, what would you pick? It doesn't... <laughs> depends on the jail. Two years. Two years. Just go with me for a second. Pretend we're on the same page. Two years. And so, of course, the king Nebuchadnezzar, I mean, I'm sorry, the king Zedekiah was like, Jeremiah says 70, Hananiah says 2, let's go with you. All right, this is what God says. It's not up for debate. It's not a buffet to pick and choose. Jeremiah, the Bible says what? I'm done. <laughs> I'm just walking away because I'm about to go totally, you know, Vermontish on this guy. So he just walks away and says, it's not even worth answering this fool according to his folly. So Jeremiah writes a letter to the people who are already over there. And let's pick it up in verse 4. This is what the Lord of armies, come on, the Lord of armies. Everyone say, the Lord of armies. When you're on your knees praying tonight, you're not just praying to the Prince of Peace and the King of Kings, you're praying to what? The Lord of armies, the God who can conquer anything if he so chooses. 
So Jeremiah is telling these people in captivity who was defeated by another large nation, the largest nation in the world at the time, don't worry, you're praying to the Lord of all the armies. That is so powerful. The God of Israel, the, this is what he says to the exile, I deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. God said, I did this. Verse 5, build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, find wives for yourself, have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons, and give your daughters to men in marriage, so they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Don't decrease. Verse 7. Here it is. Pursue the well-being of the city I deported you to. Pray to the Lord on his behalf. For when it thrives, you will thrive. Ooh. Jeremiah very clearly told them it's going to be 70 years. And from this passage of Scripture, I'm going to give you five takeaways that I challenge our church and I'm challenging you guys with to live in these days. I kind of phrased them in ways I hope you remember them. Not a typical sermon class um, that Dr. Mandela would teach, I hope. Let me tell you. Here, first one is this. Plant your soul in the soil. He says, plant your soul. I say, plant your soul in the soil. Uh, God will call you to lead somewhere. Some of you will stay in, in Vermont. Some will be other parts of North England, New England or the Northeast. You may be like me and God take you all the way across the nation. Uh, but wherever you go, plant your soul in the soil. Don't just plant a church. Plant your lives. Don't just start a church or pastor a church or take a job. Plant your soul in the soil for which you're about to go. Uh, I told Danny about one church planner that started about the same time we did. He never changed his tags over for his car from the place, the state, the southern state that he was at. And one day, we're in a church planner network meeting, and I said, how come your tags still say the state where you're at is way deep in the south? Oh, my dad pays for my tags. But doesn't it kind of show that you're not all in? Doesn't it kind of show that you're still connected and, and people see that? They think you're just coming and going? Oh, no, no, I'm here to stay. Well, we all had funding for two years back then. And he left to the day when his funding stopped and two years later, he didn't plant his soul in the soil. He came, he worked, and he shared the gospel, but his soul never left the south. Plant a hole, dig, plant it. Everywhere I've been, I tried to plant my family in. I met people, bought a house, did whatever I needed to do to let people know I am here to say. What does Jeremiah say to him? Build a house, live in it. That shows that you are there. That shows that you are there and you have intentions on staying there. He says, eat a garden, well, plant a garden. That means you're going to be there for the harvest. And that means you're going to be there for the next season, the next sowing. He, he says, make certain people know that you're going to be there long term. Don't just eat fast food the whole time. Really lay out your gardens. Not that they had fast food back there. He says, what? Marry. Get married. Have kids. Let them get married. Intermarry with them. Even let them become part of your family. Now, later on, that becomes a problem. But right here, Jeremiah is saying, this is what I want you to do. God's in sovereign or he's not. God's in charge or he's not. Say amen. amen. If he's in charge, then let him be in charge and plant your soul there. There's this little restaurant in our town. You may not have heard of it. It's called, um, called Chick-fil-A. <laughs> it's beautiful. I eat there seven times a day. I literally love everything on the menu. I literally love everything on the menu. In fact, I love everything on the menu so much, when they get my order wrong, I don't even get upset. I just, I just trust they know what's better for me than I do. I go there and I order uh, waffle fries, they get potato chips. Like, you know what, you're right, my bad. 
I, I ordered the spicy sandwich. They give me a chicken salad. I'm like, you know, forgive me. I should have checked with you first. I trust that there's some sovereignty person at that window that's going to pass out to me what I really need, even if I get the wrong thing wrong. But yet somehow when we come to God, we tell him he doesn't get things right. Well, God, I'm supposed to be at this point in this life. I'm supposed to be married. I'm supposed to have a kid. I'm supposed to have a house. My twin brother already has all that. I do not. I'm supposed to be someplace else in life where I'm at right now. Trust the sovereignty of God. Plant your soul wherever God calls you into that soil and watch God from that place grow you into a harvest for the kingdom of God. I got more to say on that, but I want to get you out of here at 11.59 for preacher reasons. Let's move on. The next point is this. Clock in every day. I mean, literally clock in every day. Go to work. Wherever God calls you to go, not just from this point, but even here, go to work. We're talking about Danny Aiken uh, a while ago at Southeastern Seminary. He was a dean of students when I started. That tells how old I am. Now he's a president, and so good for him. But while I was there as dean of students, I met with him when I first moved there. He said, Brad, go to chapel every time. Of course, he got in trouble if we didn't. But nonetheless, I went to chapel. I clocked in. I didn't sleep in the dorm. Even the ones I didn't want to go to, I still went to. I clocked in every day. How are they supposed to clock in? He says, pursue the well-being of the city. I deported you to. There's your plant your soul. And he says, pray to the Lord on its behalf. That's how you clock in. Pray to the Lord for its behalf. You know, when someone takes you into slavery, when someone rips you out of your home, takes you 900 miles because they're the conqueror, not the liberator, the last thing in my heart to do is to pray for them, especially for their well-being. When someone takes my family and takes me away from my, all my ancestral and all my inheritance, I don't really want to pray for them. And I, now I'm told to marry them. And now I'm told to marry my kids off to them. And now you're telling me to pray for them. There's something counterintuitive here, but the gospel is counterintuitive to our entire kingdom because I have to choose. Am I going to live for the kingdom which I'm living in or the king for which called me? And so do you, and so do I. So I also find it hard to be critical of people I'm praying for. I find it very hard to criticize people, even on Twitter, when I don't like what's going on. When I don't like what's going on in the election, I find it hard when I pray for someone to be critical of them. Someone in my church, someone in my family, someone I pass by, and I don't like the way they're driving because they don't like the way I'm driving, and they use finger gestures to show it. I find it hard to be critical of them when I pray for them. But can I say something else on that matter? I find myself easily persuaded to become angry, bitter, or upset when I don't pray for them. When I don't pray for them, I find myself, even though I'm a man of conviction, a core of conviction, I can be persuaded and, pers- and, and suaded when I don't pray for them. So clock in every day. Pray for the people around you that God will bless them. Even the ones that kidnapped me and taken me 900 miles away, that was his word to them. Because we are not to live for the kingdom for which we have a zip code and a house in. We're to live for the king for which we have given our hearts and our lives to. You agree with that? Say amen. I got more to say. Let's move on. I like this next one. Expect the trickle-down favor. Trickle-down. I know you have a business class here. Talk about trickle-down economics, where the economics are supposed to trickle down. It's a premise that goes like this, that if you give the companies that are the largest tax breaks, they will be able to pass that down to smaller companies that they buy and sell from. 
And so a large company that has more tax breaks or more grants or more, makes it easier for the bigger company, then they'll be able to make it easier for their contractors and their subcontractors and downflow. Uh, when we talk about Joplin, let me explain it this way. We were there. Uh, a, a tornado comes through Joplin my fifth Sunday. It's one mile wide, six miles long through the heart of our city. And it took away jobs, took away homes, took away people's places of income. It just it devastated our city. But then something started to happen. The builders, the developers, they came back in, and they started rebuilding. They started, they started moving dirt around. They started building developments and bigger homes and bigger uh, buildings, and, and companies came back. You know what happened? People got jobs again. The plumbers had something to plumb. The painters had something to paint. Uh, the, the bulldozers ha had dirt to push. And you go down to the bankers, they had loans to write. And the real estate agents had things to sell again. And the title people had, had closings to go to. And the insurance brokers had things to insure again. Because what happened with the builders and the developers, it trickled all the way down to the fast food people had people to buy food because they're on their lunch breaks. It trickled down. We live in Oklahoma. Everything is tied to oil in Oklahoma. When Oklahoma and the oil is high, we have lots of money to give to colleges in the Northeast. When oil is low, we barely have money to pay our own bills. There's a saying in Oklahoma that when it hurts at the pump, it helps in the plate, which means if gas is super, super high, say, oh, well, thank you, Lord, for those oil churches in Oklahoma and Texas that are getting big ties right now. When gas goes low, pray for us because we're not making our bills. So when, it, when gas is high, it helps us out because so much of our economy and people in our church are tied just to that. Well, trickle down favor, he says here, when it thrives, you will thrive. When the nation thrives, you will thrive. And there's a premise here that when, when the king gives his heart to Christ, that he is going to fear God and follow God and make it easier on those around him. And when the king gives his life over to the Lord, then everyone else underneath him will see the benefits of that. That's why we're supposed to pray for our leaders. And literally, the book of Nehemiah, uh, the book of Daniel, Esther, Ezra, all that reflect what happens when God got a hold of the king's heart. I put this on Twitter the other day, 1 Timothy chapter 2. Or I put this on Facebook. I urge you then, you know this verse, that petitions and prayers, intercession and thanksgiving be made for all people, for the kings and those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives and the goodliness, I'm sorry, in the godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases the God our Savior. Uh, President Trump had COVID. So I said, pray for President Trump and put this verse in there. That is the most biblical tweet. I had a prayer request. I was relevant and I had scripture to back it up. I mean, be proud. I was excited about that one. I have people stop following me and defriend me because I said, pray for President Trump. I'm telling you, my, my, I wasn't even upset that happened. Here's what, this what bothered me. How did I become friends in the first place with somebody who would be surprised that a, a pastor would ask for prayer for the president while quoting scripture to back it up? How did our paths ever cross? How did you ever think, well, here's Brad. Him and I resonate together. I'll make him my friend. How, how did we ever get that tight and that connected that you'd be offended that I would say, hey, pray for someone with COVID who makes a lot of decisions that affect all of us because they don't believe in trickle-down favor. Most people are cared and concerned just what affects them, just the pain that affects them. I learned that when we moved to San Diego the month before we leave. My wife was full-term pregnant. We lost our daughter. We, we buried her and set her headstone the day of my wife flying out, and I left the day later. 
And uh, we're in San Diego, the most sad, miserable we've ever been in the most beautiful city I've ever lived in. And I couldn't see past our own pain to plant my soul in the soil. I couldn't see past my own pain to, to, to worry about trickle-down favor. I just was trying to take care of my family and my life. I, I, my margin was exhausted. My emotions were depleted. And there's no joy in my life. And my wife was even worse. And now I'm trying to fill her cup up. It was the hardest three and a half years of church playing I've ever had in my entire life. And they're literally the most beautiful city in the entire nation that we've ever lived in. And it wasn't a money problem. It was a Brad and Becky problem. But God started to heal us. Now we have two other kids. We have four kids, the twins that Mark talked about. Now we have two other kids. And each kid brought more healing and more hope. And now we have a place of joy to come out of. Well, he says trickle-down favor here and how it works. Um, and I, I challenge you to work with that. Well, let me move on. And the next one is this. Here's the last two, and I'll go quickly. Don't believe fake news. Just don't believe it. Jeremiah 29, uh, look down, verse 8. This is what the Lord of Army, the God of Israel, says. Don't let the prophets who are among you, your div diviners, deceive you. Don't listen to the dreams so the, uh, you elicit from them. For they are prophesying falsely to you my name. I have not sent them. This is the Lord's declaration. Don't believe the false news. Jeremiah calls out two false prophets and two kings who said, I want the two-year plan, not the 70-year plan. I like this a lot better. And Jeremiah said, it's God's wrath. Just drink it. It won't kill you, but it has to go through you. And that's the one thing we learned through the tornado. We learned it through church conflict. We learned it through church planting. We learned it through the loss of our daughter. You have to go through it to get through it. And uh, my last thought is this, is hope is God's plan. Look at verse 10, chapter 29. This is what the Lord says. For 70 years, Babylon will complete. Or when 70 years is over, for Babylon are complete, I will attend to you. I will confirm my promise concerning you to restore you to this place. For I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration. Plans for your well-being, not for disaster. To give you a future and to give you hope. Hope is God's plan. Trust in that. You know, when we uh, started the whole quarantine situation, uh, I, we shut down for four weeks because everyone shut down. And um, at, on the fourth Sunday, we're like, we can't do this anymore. This is not us. You know, we were going to have a big thing at the, at the fairgrounds. We got shut down there. And I'm like, we're going to go. Uh, Danny had bought a FM transmitter. So we're, like, we're going to do parking lot church. And some people are saying, don't do that. It's not real church. I'm like, you know what? I've got to preach. Our people want to have some sense of normality. So we don't have a big parking lot. We have like a place where like six little parking lots come together, and the street kind of makes a T. And we were uh, the, the roof of our gym had just blown off, so we had this bucket truck come in, and they put me on top of this bucket truck. It was like a forklift, a sky jam, whatever it's called. And I'm up there where I can see everybody. And I'm like, if you love Jesus, honk. And everyone starts honking. And we're on the radio. And people started tuning the radio. Who wasn't even there? It went all over the town. And so for uh, 10 weeks, we did parking lot church. We moved to lawn chair church, and they started getting closer and more comfortable. I did not want to be in that truck. I, I didn't want to be there. But our people needed to see that Brad and Becky were there, that they weren't trying to leave, 
that their pastor and their pastor staff were there, that we were all in, that we planted our soul into the soil. Uh, they wanted to see that, that we, we were there and that we're, we believe that God's going to take care of all of us. They needed to know um, that uh, hope was there. Well, I came across this story, and I end with this story that really helped set the mindset. Have you ever heard of what's called the Stockdale Paradox? Anyone at all? All right, let me give this to you. It refers to Admiral Jim Stockdale, highest-ranking U.S. Uh, United States military officer who was prisoner of war camp in Hanoi Hilton. During the height of the Vietnam War, tortured over 20 times during his eight-year imprisonment in the late 60s and early 70s, Stockdale lived the prisoner of war camp without any prisoner's rights, no set release date, no certainty as to whether he would even survive to see his family again. While he was there, he had to show the burden of being in command because he was the highest-ranking officer in the Hanoi Hilton prisoner of war camp. He did everything he could to make the conditions um, more palatable there for those. He even created a code for them to communicate. One day they said that the code was, was the Morse code they created, and on his anniversary of being there, the men were out in the yard with their brooms, and they did the Morse code that he had created just for them because it had to be something different uh, from the people who had imprisoned them. And we said, we love Stockdale. We love Stockdale. And it didn't make no sense to those who had imprisoned them, but he knew what was going on. He even also created a, a system of how when you're tortured, because no one can stand torture inevitably. So he said, well, after 10 times of this, then give them a little piece of information. So the new prisoners who were being tortured, they had a plan. They had a system. Systems work. Well, he did all that. He comes back, and he gets the Medal of Honor for this, the Congressional Medal of Honor. He's the only person who had the Navy and the Navy to have the aviator wings and the Congressional Medal of Honor. And this is what he said. I never lost faith in the end of the story. He said, and when asked, I never doubted not only that I would get out, but also that I would prevail in the end and turn this experience into the defining moment of my life, which in retrospect, I would not trade what I went through for what it's turned me into. But he was asked this question. This is what got my attention. I end with this. Well, not everyone made it. He was asked, who didn't make it? And he answered. He said, oh, that's easy. The optimist. They didn't make it. The optimist? I don't understand. I said completely, now confused, what does that mean? He said, the optimist, they're the ones who said, hey, we're going to be out by Christmas. And Christmas would come and go. They said, we're going to be out by Easter. Uh, Easter would come and go. They said, well, then Thanksgiving. By Thanksgiving, certainly we'll be uh, uh, freed and rescued. And then once again, it's Christmas. And they died of a broken heart. Here's the very important lesson. You must never confuse the faith that you will prevail in the end, but you can't afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality. He said, here's the two things that got me through. Number one, never lose faith. Retain it unwavering. Faith that God in the end will someday make a story of what you're going through. Northeastern Baptist College, don't lose faith. God's stories be written. And the second thing he said, is confront the brutal facts of your current reality. Don't pretend they're not present. Go through it to get through it. Don't take an easier prophecy. Don't take the easy way out. Go through it. Find a way. Find a way to get through it. Find a way. This will pass, but it will pass exactly when God said it will pass. And I encourage you. I encourage you. Don't lose hope because hope is God's plan. Father, in Jesus' name, I ask you to give 
Northeastern Baptist College hope to become and fulfill all that you've called them to come and fulfill. They will be what you've called them to be. And Father, thank you for what's happened so far. But Lord, we believe greater things for the future. In the name of Jesus Christ, may they find a way to live for the King of Kings while living in this kingdom. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen.